Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, how are you, my friend? Oh, so good, Scott. I, actually, I'm a little uh, a little tired today because we were up late last night. Yeah, well, late for you. It was it was I I'm a little tired too for some reason. I don't know why, but because I'm Eastern Standard Time. Um, we have our second guest ever on the podcast, Harry Pierce, who's also in the show MI Five. That's true. Spooks. It's also what? called Spooks. It's about spies. The main character, the guy who ran the, the, the one unit of MI5 was called Harry Pierce. So I didn't yeah, know that you were on TV. No. Well, I mean, he's my namesake. There's a slight difference in spelling. He's P-E-A-R-C-E, and I'm with an S. Um, oh, so that's your had, undercover. <laughs> yeah, deep cover. <laughs> but he, uh, he, has, he, he, he was a character in Spooks who managed not to get knocked off in a show that was incredibly good at knocking off his off, characters. Yeah. And you, you work. I don't, I don't, I don't have time for a trash TV. Oh, you're, you're so after, deep. That's why I, I have time for Tiger King. You know, I have time for the last dance. Harry, you co-lead or you're a part of uh, the, and help run the, the center for the future of democracy. And Chris sent me a piece she wrote, which I thought was outstanding. He brought it to my attention called Let's Talk COVID. And this is something in the U.S. I've seen. Basically, if I get the gist of the piece, you're saying that, look, uh, we need kind of um, more consent of the governed for public policy. We can't just say the scientists are telling us we're going to do this and we're going to do it because if, if that's the way policy works out, like it ha- like it's seeming to play out in the U.K. and in the United States, it creates this backlash where people feel like they're prisoners to expertise and to, uh, you know, that, well, the scientists say this, so we have to lock down. And you're, you kind of offer a different model where we would use sampling, um, and some other techniques to get more consent of the government, to get people to actually weigh in and shape decisions on complex issues like COVID-19. Is that like a fair summary of the piece? Yeah. I think that the, the wave of measures that coalesced in, lockdowns in the UK or America or wherever were interesting to the extent that they were they were applied very quickly in some cases and they applied to almost everyone and they didn't really seek much legislative scrutiny or indeed public engagement and i think that the reason that more or less people have been content with that arrangement to date is that there was the urgency of the measures themselves and people recognize that things need to be done very quickly, but also that they apply to everyone in more yeah. or less the same way and more or less the same to the same degree. And we can and, all see kind of look left, look right on the street. We're all stuck in indoors and, right, and that kind of right. builds social tolerance to it. Yeah, exactly. And the next phase of the COVID measures, which will be various degrees of unlocking resulting in the end in a total reversal of the lockdowns, will, in their partiality, affect some people at some times, some people in others, and will affect us in different ways. And I think at that point, at the point where politics and the measures taken in response to COVID begin to redefine the community, the large community that we live in, 
and to divide people, the consent of the people who will be affected by those policies in various ways will need to be considered and taken into account to a far greater degree. Can, so I, the, can I just jump in, jump in on that there mm-hmm. to kind of connect what is what why I loved your piece and said, oh, like, Scott, we, we got to sit down with Harry and just kind of tease us out a bit is, you know, so the last four to six weeks or so, um, I've been involved, involved is too strong a word. I've kind of been like, you know, peering in like a kid in the candy store to the kind of um, policy and decision-making models that um, like big state governments are putting together that like international institutions like the World Bank are putting together to help senior decision makers, policymakers decide, okay, um, basically what do we reopen and how fast do we reopen? And, and they've got these fantastic models that, that, uh, rely upon and presume that there's going to be uh, a lot of real-time data available about the state of our healthcare system, about, um, uh, you know, at a kind of sector by sector level, uh, how important is this sector to the economy? How able is this sector going to be to get back to work in a way that is sensitive to social distancing and stuff like that? And, and all of it makes tremendous sense, but I've always felt just looking at it that there is this glaring giant piece of the, of the dashboard missing, which is, will people accept this? And, and I think you're totally right. There is just a mountain of, of, of analytic work intended to drive decision making happening right now that isn't considering the consent question at all. And I'm really worried. I'm really quite worried about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a question of consent and the rights of political communities to have a say over the decisions that affect them. But I think it's also worth pointing out that, um, you know, we're living in a time in which scientific and other expertise is being explicitly brought to bear on policymaking. Um, but it's not, it, it's not the case that science speaks in one voice, that it is self-evidently one thing over another, and that it can be followed uh, in a way that many governments claim that it can be. So whenever we have a public health measure or piece of legislation that purports to be following the science, what it's doing is it's taking elements of science interpreted one way over another and at the expense of other pieces of science and marrying that information with a bunch of value decisions about the value of life, say, about security, about liberty, about rights, about obligation, and is making policy through an amalgamation of those things. So it's also important to remember that decisions which bundle all of those things together are not exclusively the preserve of scientists. They must be the decisions in those veins must be contributed to by scientists for sure, but also policymakers, civil servants, but also fundamentally, I think the people for whom those decisions will apply most directly, which is citizens. And don't you think when people don't understand that they vacillate between two extremes? They either have a dogmatic confidence in in the science, the scientific establishment that that's shaping the policy. 
Or they become cynical and skeptical as if the science is completely arbitrary, right? If you don't understand the nuance you're talking about, it seems that, at least in the United States, people wind up on one end of the, or the other, those kind of polar extremes. Yeah. I mean, I think that speaks to a general confusion that democracies still have with regard to expertise and, and scientific expertise, perhaps, in particular. Uh, and that's that we don't know whether... Well, so on the one hand, as you say, there's the view that we ought to just follow this thing, which is capable of producing knowledge that is true. The problem with that is that that isn't, in fact, what science does. It's a bunch of contested claims, and it's contributed to by a bunch of different equally contingent forms of knowledge. The other problem with it is that if you do accept that, then politicians can completely uh, avoid responsibility and culpability when things go wrong. They can simply blame scientists. An alternative way of engaging with expertise is to bring it into the political realm itself, which and, and, and make scientists political actors sort of in competition with all the other ones. The problem with that, obviously, is that experts don't want to be politicized in that way. So I think democracies are going to have to work out how they engage with expertise. And to put it more pointedly, how democratic legitimacy interacts with expert judgment. I don't know exactly how the best way to do that is, but one way would be, as I argue in the piece that you refer to, to set up more deliberative forms of democratic engagement in which experts and citizens discussed questions together. And mm. expert judgment could then be brought to bear on political decisions without running the risk of A, being scapegoated, or B, being politicized, as well as citizens being able to contribute to questions, the answers of which will affect their lives. I'm shocked in the United States how the mostly folks in the center left went from completely deferential, a completely deferential posture to the distancing and to the, and to the, the kind of measures that were you know, the stay at home, shelter in place and stuff to all of a sudden, it's like, there's no COVID anymore. Everybody's out protesting and people are in urban areas, like shouting with respiratory droplets, like, you know, hailstorms of respiratory droplets everywhere. I mean, I was looking today, watching the news stand, people were saying there's going to be a massive new outbreak because of all this. But it's just interesting the way you talk about political will. It's like the, the, the center left just decided, um, we, yeah, we're, you know, this is more important. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that's illegitimate. They said, look, there's an injustice here. It's severe and, and we need to, and, and that kind of just o overshadowed or, or at least it relativized the public health concern. And, and, and in some ways, it, like in an informal deliberative way, right? Like the public just chose priorities, right? Like it, it kind of, it went from one priority to the other. And I, I take it what you're saying is, wow, what if we could frame that in a more deliberative, intentional way so that we could, we could weigh priorities and things like that, which is, which it doesn't seem like we've done up to up to this point in the pandemic there must be and i wonder if you've got sort of a bunch of eager uh, doctoral students in the center for the future of democracy who are working on this right now but like this is just such a wonderful moment if i'm researching a thesis on kind of you know the role of reason in contemporary democracy because it seems to me that um like all of our all of our worst nightmares about what we what we've kind of fudged over in terms of how 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 
sort of rational thought fits into our theory of you know why we why we think democracy is a is kind of a good way to run the world are kind of you know being exposed in in this crisis um and you know i i i, I need to go and and do some uh background reading on your piece harry because you quote this uh this work by this uh, yale professor mm-hmm. dan dan kahan dan mm-hmm. kahan um you know, who, who basically, I guess, found that the sort of the more educated you are, there, there's no clear correlation between how educated you are and how how much, you know, quote unquote, science is informing your um, your political views. It seems if I'm reading it right, more education, the, case that the more educated you are, the more polarized you, you better are. better at confirmation bias. <laughs> you get more education yeah. and you get yeah. better sources. So, so you <laughs> but, so, so, but I just sort of throw another piece on on the table. I don't know how all these pieces fit together, but but this idea that somehow the the solution, and it's the long term solution, is we've got to figure out how to better kind of integrate science and the experts into the discourse because it does seem like you know we've kind of set up this model where like there are I guess those people over there who are experts. And they can speak at us when we require it or when we welcome it, um, but but it's not like there there is no integrated understanding of the the powers and the limitations of expertise um, of you know that expertise doesn't mean that there is a kind of blueprint understanding of the world. Um, it means more, you know, better informed about some things, but also means maybe ha- experts have a harder time understanding the stuff outside of their area of expertise, right? And so, y- if you're going to have experts make decisions, you need to have multiple experts to kind of represent the. Di- I, so I, I'm, I'm going to stop rambling, but I, I feel like there's there is this. One of the things I think is becoming obvious at the moment is how badly. Ex- how badly integrated into society the expert is. Yeah, I think, uh, I, I mean, I, I think you're right. And I think in many instances, it comes down to the nature and the style of communication. So it, it used to be thought in scientific and policymaking circles that in order to get a population infused by or at least interested in your scientific area of expertise or policy domain you simply had to tell them a huge amount about that scientific endeavor or policy domain the implication being that people didn't people don't like things they don't subscribe to things or agree with things if they don't understand them or they don't know anything about them and this was called the deficit model of scientific communication people don't know very much you tell them more about a particular thing they are then more in favor of that particular thing and mm. study after study after study has disproved this as a way of doing scientific communication. It's simply not the case that the more you tell people about things, the more they have a quote unquote rational attitude towards those, that thing. They're not necessarily, you know, giving people more information about something won't necessarily generate consensus on that particular thing. And the work that you referenced by Dan Kahan is really persuasive. And it shows that the 
more educated and the more um, the more uh, kind of numerical and scientific literacy you have, which are kind of proxies for reasoning capacity, the more you have of those things doesn't mean that you'll end up being more concerned about climate change, for example. Um, so you, it's not simply the case that to get people um, behind certain climate action, you can simply tell them more about the nature of the problem and the implications of not doing anything about it. It's not that people don't know those things that prevents them from thinking the thing that you want them to think. Interesting. So you're so like Al Gore's whole inconvenient truth around the world wasn't necessarily going to change global public opinion to rally behind. And it didn't, did it? I mean, it, I mean, this is so big, yeah. right? Because it, there is, I think, um, a broadly held assumption that there is a relationship between, you know, very broadly education and thinking the right way. <laughs> Do you guys know Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow? Um, the, the psychologist, to pretty, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, I remember they would do these experiments and these are educated people in universities. They would have them spin a wheel, a random wheel with, with numbers on it. And then ask them, how many countries do you think are on the continent of Africa? The higher the number they spun, the higher the number of countries they guessed. <laughs> I mean, you just think about those kinds of study, all those kinds of studies they would do that we are just so, you know, like, you know, and that's the point, right? We all make all these, we can't deliberate about everything, right? So we make all these snap judgments, um, which evolutionarily we have to be able to do to survive. But that, but I think for the, from the deliberative democracy standpoint, it, it, it makes, we need more slow thinking, not fast thinking, right? We need our brain to slow down and consider things rather than just react. And I think, and I, think I love, right. But we've right, also go got to, I think we've also got to remember that political questions tend not to admit of technically right or technically wrong answers. They tend to admit of a variety of value-laden answers. Mm. So one of the things that is important about deliberative forms of democracy is that, that they can get away from the technocratic idea that there is a right answer to certain questions, and it's the job of politics simply to uncover that answer. And with a model that works in that way, the people who are trained to unpack these things and uncover certain answers in certain disciplinary, within certain disciplinary parameters, i.e. experts, are the people who by implication ought to be taking decisions on everyone's behalf. Whereas if we acknowledge the fact that we can answer political questions in a number of different ways, however we answer them, we will be importing and negotiating between different value judgments, as well, hopefully, as certain factual claims and arguments, then it behooves us to involve as many people as possible in coming to those sorts of answers. And they may or may not be the most technocratically efficient answers, but by virtue of the fact that they involve a bunch of different people, they canvas and at least seek to reflect a bunch of different interests, they'll be more consensual, more practicable, and probably seem to be more legitimate than simply saying, this is the right answer. This is therefore what we ought to do. But I love, um, sorry, I got to jump in here again, because I, 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 I love your kind of critique of maybe, you know, the classic notion of deliberative democracy. So maybe let me do 101 for myself, because 
as I understand it, I think of representative democracy as, okay, I'm going to vote for you, Harry. So you go think about these problems. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I'm going to go and focus on sort of my, my other stuff. Um, that's representation. And then deliberate, deliberative democracy is kind of like, no, 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 you can't offload it all to Harry, your elected official. You have to be a participant as a citizen in some of these important value laden choices that are going to get made. But I like how in your piece, I, I totally recognize this is just sort of a, a draft. So I'm really happy that you shared it with us so we can kind of tear it apart a bit. But that kind of, you know, the classic way of doing deliberative democracy is to say, okay, let's kind of, let's, let's construct a, a, a representative <laughs> sample of, of ordinary people to deliberate, you know, and, and we, the experts, we will, um, we will implant in their brains the right information, and then uh, we will let them do this messy black box thing of value weighing against one anotherness and spit back at us, hopefully, the right answer. <laughs> hopefully, the right answer, which then we can kind of go back and say, see, and and, and what I love is that you then tear that apart and say, you know, well, I think the best way to do this is to include lay people and experts, which is like the fundamental error we're making there is this notion of expertise and lay as as kind of, you know, a, a division between holders of truth and holders of value. And that if we ever want deliberative democracy to be something more than a kind of political buy-in exercise we we've we've got to let go of that comforting simplification and and everybody get their hands a bit dirtier is that yeah no that's i that that that's right i mean i think the conventional defense of deliberative democracy says that or says something along the lines of if you get, as you say, a representative sample of people, you put them in or you give them discursive conditions that are fair and equal and open. And if you encourage them to interact with one another fairly and rationally, whatever that might mean to you, you are likely, so the defenders of deliberative democracy say, to generate consensus, generate more rational judgments, generate more other regarding sentiments, something along those lines. And as the work of someone like Dan Cahan demonstrates, that isn't necessarily, the, that won't necessarily happen. You can give people more information, you can encourage them to express themselves rationally, all these sorts of things. And you don't necessarily get a convergence of opinion or a quote unquote rational judgment. Instead, therefore, I think in some instances, deliberative democracy and these deliberative democratic exercises like citizens' juries and citizens' assemblies should be redesigned to emphasize slightly different things. So rather than seeking to change people's opinions or generate a rational consensus or to access some version of what you might describe a common good, all things which are incredibly difficult to do, you should structure deliberative exercises so they maximize certain political attributes like inclusion and like the opportunity to participate. And one way that you might do that is to, rather than just getting a bunch of citizens to talk to one another, get those citizens, 
and also get some experts, some policymakers, some politicians, some people in authority, and get these different groups to exchange ideas with one another and try and see try and understand an issue from a variety of perspectives. It's interesting you said I have a friend who is visiting some family in Tennessee. He lives in Philadelphia. He's probably in his mid to late fifties. He's got some health issues that could put him in a higher risk category. I mean and he was saying being in Tennessee is such a different experience because he's like, you know, in in Pennsylvania, people are there's the number the COVID cases are higher. He's like, you're, you're anxious about touching anything in a store. Everybody's masked up. He's like, in Tennessee, it's not like that. They're much more relaxed. And he said, just being there changed his perspective on the world. He's like, my anxiety level dropped. My, you know, like, I just, my whole, like, you know, I, I'm still a little careful, you know, like, I'm still kind of doing a little bit of distancing because, you know, I, I'm a little concerned. But it was just interesting how his whole consciousness changed by being in a culture that had a much more relaxed, and sort of permissive approach to how people deal should deal with you know the virus, and I thought I, I mean I, it's interesting that that what you're saying, it, it, why I bring that up is that, you know you've got these people with on different ends of the spectrum around fear, around expertise, around around you know how much they want to defer to science, science and public policy, how much individual liberty they're they're valuing, and in this country it's a pretty big country and it's a pretty uh, broad sample across the spectrum, and so, and we're not, you know, we're not going to get a vaccine anytime in the near future. I don't think so. Like, we're going to have to do exactly what you're saying as a country. Like, we're going to have to figure out who, how do we share risks together, right? And and you're right, we're not going to like the experts just can't tell us that, right? I mean, we're going to have to, as citizens, say this is the kind of risks we're willing to take as individuals. These are things we can leave up to personal responsibility. These are things maybe we need to like um, have certain sort of public sector kind of um, guardrails on. But there's no, I, there's no. I think what you're saying, right? There's no perfect answer to that, right? Like we're not going to. We're it'll come through the consent of the governed and the wider consent model we build. The more governable the culture is going to be. Yeah, and there's a kind of hard nosed efficacy argument here as well. Um, so, for example. Uh, contact tracing will presumably feature or be a feature of whatever type or degree of unlocking takes place, say, here in the UK. Now, it's obviously not up to lay people to um, technically devise the contact tracing system. That would be completely ludicrous. There are people who can bring their expert knowledge and understanding to bear on the construction and then the deployment of that technology. On the other hand, it would be completely pointless in a way to devise a particular technology that was broadly considered by the public to be either morally unacceptable or which in some way clashed with or undermined their capacity to live the life that they expect or want to lead. So, in that instance, you have two different bodies of knowledge. You have the kind of technical knowledge that would go into devising a socially useful technology. And then there's the kind of social and the practical knowledge that sets the boundaries of what is acceptable to those people. If you don't marry those two together, you're going to have a pretty crappy policy. So both of them need to be leveraged in order to devise, well, in this case, public health policy, which can be deployed. And so kind of what the summary statement there for, would be, right? Like, the, the technical experts can tell us what we can do, 
but they can't tell us what we should do. Like the can is provided by the experts, but the should or the ought has to be provided by the public consensus or, or it, it's not going to be something that, you know, again, consent of the governed kind of issues. Are you, here's a question just on the contact tracing. Are, are either of you worried about will, will the privacy concerns prevent an effective sort of contact tracing, you know, ecosystem or app from rolling out? Like, are you worried that the privacy issues are going to be a stumbling block? Just reveal my own. I'm not, I'm not that worried about that. If I, if I look at, you know, how freely we all accept to share our private information for like minor conveniences, um, in, in, in sort of, you know, our, our digital lives, how, how, how off, how, how frustrated I am that I have to like, click yes i accept every time i go to a website now that there's all these you know um gdpr protections in 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 europe and i mean i just i just accept 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 almost all the time um so i've been given you know my rights have been protected but but i i i don't value my privacy anymore and if i think of you know my friends in china with contact tracing apps so it's not like you were required to but if you wanted to go to a cafe, if you wanted to go to a 7-Eleven, if you wanted to go anywhere and do anything at the door, they wanted to see, you know, whether your, uh, whether your app status was green. And you could choose to install that app or not. But only if you did, did you have the privileges of being able to go around to someone with, you know, I'm, I'm low risk. Um, yeah, wait. I I feel like we're we're still very far behind in the rollout of these tracing apps. Um, but yeah, Harry, Harry, what do you think? Well, I mean, I was saying uh, to Scott before you joined us that um, I'm a bit of a luddite. Um, so the way I safely interact with technology is to send emails and use Word documents, and anything beyond that gets me kind of flustered so i i I tend to give it a bit of a wide berth um so i don't really know anything about the contact tracing technology i mean just broadly speaking and really this is broad i mean my attitude to, to any form of technology really is that it really depends how it's used and how it's deployed um there are very obvious potential health benefits to deploying certain technologies and allowing us to open up in a certain way safely. And if technology can be leveraged to that end, that seems like a relatively good thing to me. On the other hand, you hear all these kind of horrible premonitions about under-the-skin technology that might help us unlock in a more judicious fashion but could be repurposed later to tell whether you are having an angry reaction to a political speech that you're watching online. Uh, That would obviously be quite a lot worse. I know nothing about how these things work, how the information is gathered and stored and used. I would not be concerned if these technologies were used simply to help us in a public health crisis like this, I would obviously be worried as everyone would be if they were repurposed to slightly more 
holistic. Yeah, I, my understanding is like what Google and Apple are work are proposing is something like if you if you came up as positive, you were infected, then they could map out like in grocery stores and everything and and shopping malls and, and things, they could map out all the people you've come into contact with through their phones. So I, it's a complex algorithm, right? But so so then you would actually get like a message, oh Chris, you could have been exposed. You were within six feet of somebody today that has tested positive for COVID nineteen. I, I mean I, I think that doesn't sound completely nefarious to me, but but I do think it's interesting in the US we just have it's just this cultural stuff, right? We just have privacy concerns in general because of our own constitutional tradition. But but strangely though, it seems for all our privacy concerns, Europe has been ahead of us on regulating social media companies and things like that and 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 privacy issues, which is the ironic thing cuz I mean, I feel like we make a bigger uh, kind of deal of it culturally. I mean, we argue about these kinds of things and yet we have not been at all uh, as as sort of aggressive as Europe in in actually like doing some regulations for people's privacy which is I don't I don't know why that is my first hypothesis would be to check right, um, right, lobby right, right, right. <laughs> but I'm a cynic <laughs> how much how much are apple and google and amazon and microsoft spending to uh, to give themselves a, a a good environment to be to um, yeah, to operate in. Can I can I shift topic just a bit and get back to deliberative democracy and this idea of you know bringing the experts and the lay the lay citizen together? I mean, my anecdotal data point um, with you know the series of 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 social experiments called Basecamp that that we've been running is that from the lay citizen perspective, there's a real hunger for this. Uh, I, I think the lay citizen wants and, and has no idea how, but but would love to be in a in a kind of deliberate deliberative space with, say, a political leader, where where there was a chance to somehow have a conversation that didn't feel like you were just being spoken at, but actually felt like I could form a a sort of like uh, uh yeah a more human connection of 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 mutual talking and listening which which feels like that would be amazing and just feels completely absent uh and similarly with the expert um you know the chance to talk to a health like a a, a public health professional and talk about you know what what do we mean when we talk about health and well-being and and for it not just to be a one-sided affair but to be a real conversation where somehow both come away from it richer. Um, and then, you know, like business leaders. So, you know, and it's hard to find sometimes the partner on the, the expert side, if there's a power dichotomy, sort of the powerful and the, the one with less power in the relationship, it's hard to find the powerful who, who wants to go into this environment, but sometimes you get lucky. And when I have a friend who is a, CEO of a major sort of infrastructure company. And in the midst of this COVID crisis, he's really starting to ask like fundamental questions about the whole corporate form, right? The limited liability corporation, because what, what this whole episode has really exposed to him is just, you know, when you're thinking about your share price, when you're thinking about your shareholders, 
there is just a limit to how far term your your thinking, like your risk evaluations, can really be. Um, how broadly you can you can really take stakeholder interests on board. Um, and so, you know, here is someone who has quite soberly come to a realization that I have no idea what could possibly lie behind the current corporate form, but but I do start to wonder, could we do better? And what could that look like? And and would love to get into a conversation with, you know, not just sort of fellow chief executives, but with a kind of a broader group of people concerned and interested in that question. And I think as soon as we start to imagine like, okay, let's, let's create that forum. Um, and, you know, and, and we've been, you know, I've been part of trying to create it. It, it, the devil is in everything, uh, everything in most of our lived experiences, you know, political, social power dynamics comes into that room to frustrate it. <laughs> it's really hard to do. <laughs> it's really hard to leave the title at the door, leave the ego at the door, leave all of my grievances at the door and, um, and build something together, even though intellectually it feels like such a powerful possibility. Yeah. I mean, Conventionally, deliberative exercises are structured so that experts are brought in to brief an apparently benighted lay public. That now informed lay public goes off to talk about something and then returns with a bunch of conclusions or recommendations. Um, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think that that model could be hugely improved by actually getting experts and lay people to interact with one another. And as you alluded to, I think certainly for the lay community, it would provide a potentially unprecedented opportunity to feel as though those people are being listened to and considered that their views have value um, and that they are meaningful members of a political community. Um, and well, I mean, one of the reasons I'm interested in this sort of that sort of deliberative model is that it's, it's in a political context, at least, it's been very rarely, if ever, tested. So we're not really sure what it would mean for people mm. to be consulted in this way, to be listened to in this way. We, we just don't really know. We, I mean, you can imagine, though, that it would have some sort of effect on their sense of agency, their political self-efficacy. You can imagine people being more engaged in politics, maybe voting more, maybe joining political parties, maybe campaigning on the basis of a deliberative experience like that. Um, but I think you're, you're also right. You need to kind of energize and motivate the other side of that split, the more powerful or the, the, the group or the cohort, which is in an established position of authority. So experts or policymakers. Um, and I think that, I think that experts would be interested in doing this kind of more open dialogic engagement because as i said before it would offer them a way of bringing to bear their expertise on policy questions but without being made falsely culpable for any mishaps which is what happens when you just blindly quote unquote follow the science but it, and it would also prevent them from being politicized in a way that scientists and experts don't want to be politicized um 
And if you kind of drag them into the representative democratic arena, they will become so. Whereas if you include them in deliberation with other people, expert judgment might not win the day in precisely the fashion that a technocratic expert would advise. But at the very least, that expert judgment will be brought to bear in some way on a policy decision or at least a policy discussion. I'm interested. Do you think that given reading your paper made me think that a lot of concerns I've heard have been that, okay, with the COVID crisis, is this going to lead to sort of anti-democratic trends? Are we going to have more more authoritarian kind of trends? Because again, government, as, as as you point out, there hasn't been much legislative action. Things are just kind of done, you know? But your work almost makes me think the opposite. I wonder if people are going to demand more, more deliberative power just because people, I mean, people in this country are freaking out <laughs> because they are just like, you know, because they're told you can't do anything. The country's shut down and people, I mean, I wonder, is it could, could the whole COVID pandemic phenomena lead to actually a sort of more democratizing influence in the culture? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, as I said at the beginning, this is not so much true now, but just a few weeks ago, it was noticeable, I think, that despite these large political communities being subject to really quite fantastically draconian measures, we all kind of took it, we took it pretty well. Um, we've all accepted lockdown measures and I, and we've kind of got on with things. And as I say, I think that's in part to do with the fact that there was an appreciation that something needed to be done. It needed to be quite radical and it needed to be quite timely. But I also think it had something to do with the fact that it, it caught us all up equally. We were all affected by this in more or less the same way. Um, and I think the breakdown in that acceptance is in part to do, well, in, I mean, it's a part to do with loads of things, but, and some of it will just be fatigue with what are very withering and beleaguering, uh, measures. But part of it, I think, is to do with the fact that people are getting a glimpse of the fact that soon these measures will be for some people and not for others. And we will have to start making decisions about who is being favoured, who is being disadvantaged. Um, and that there's going to be imbalances are going to start emerge. I mean, there are imbalances already. It's not like lockdown has actually affected us equally. Some people have been ravaged by this and some people have got on with it kind of okay. But in principle, at least, the lockdown measures affected us all equally. As soon as that isn't happening, I think you're right. There will be a clamoring for more of a say by the public in how these measures are rolled out. There's going to be, I guess my hypothesis would be that there's going to be a very strong correlation between... Boy, it's... (laughs) You know, when you're about to say something and then in your mind, you see like a spider web of caveats. Oh, well, (laughs) but, uh, you know, there's going to be a correlation between um, how much like trust people have in government and how um, how how much obedience there is to the the rollout of kind of differentiated policies. Okay, you can go back to work, Scott, but Harry, you have to stay at home. And, you know, I think again at the, at the China example, you know, and, the, and there is this coercion element to it 
absolutely, and people have learned to obey uh, the public authority. But there is also, in in part, you know, because of the um, uh, you know very effective control of just the, the the communication space, there is a strong kind of trust in government. And if I can't go back to work, but Scott can, there's a good reason for this. And we all kind of go, we just, we just keep going along with it. Um, you know, I would hypothesize that in Canada, you know, peace, order, and good government, it's in our constitution. There will be a lot of grumbling, but, but quite a bit of going along with it. Like, oh yeah, this is what it's got to be. This is what it's got to be. And, and, you know, like political leaders of every stripe are kind of basically all singing from the same song sheet. But I would, I would. I assume that in the U.S., once we start to get to that level, like you know, it's it's all just going to fly. Are, are, are Sweden's an interesting yeah, example, right? I mean, Sweden. I mean, the trust in the government seems really high there, and they didn't even order shelter in place. They just told everybody, "Okay, here's the risks. Be careful." And people were relatively careful. I mean, I, you know, I mean that. I mean that model of trust uh, uh, shocked me that they could because you you just wouldn't have that in the U.S. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's gonna, I mean people are yeah people are going to freak out. Yeah. In the UK, the, the Dominic Cummings affair, I think, served notice on, on these two things. The idea that there'll be a differential, uh, COVID, uh, 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 the, the subsequent COVID measures will affect us in different ways. But also. Just very briefly on what was the Dominic Cummings oh, affair so Dominic for those Cummings who don't know. Is Boris Johnson's chief political advisor and, the architect of both the Vote Leave campaign in the Brexit referendum and Johnson's uh, successful uh, general election campaign last year. And he, um, he, so he was, he's been part of the government that uh, issued these lockdown measures. And then it's subsequently been found out that while the government that he's a part of was telling people to kind of stay at home, not leave, uh, you know, going out only for very essential things like food and an hour's exercise. He was driving to Durham with his kid and wife, which is, you know, 260 miles from where he lives. Um, and then while he was in Durham, he was going on, uh, excursions to local castles and he visited but the lockdown was for ordinary 80 year old mom or right whatever like he went his mom's birthday or something like he exposes 80 year old mom yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, no and he, he only did that to test his eyesight <laughs> anyway we'll get into that okay yes so that's the context on dominic cummings and and i think and there's been a huge hoo-ha about it subsequently well since it's been found out that he did this and i think it's alerted people to the prospects of these measures affecting people differently in the future. So affecting some people, but not others. But also, Chris, as you say, it's raised the question of well, how much can we trust the government? And you really have to trust the government really quite a lot if your political community is going to go along with incredibly illiberal policies that no one really wants to adhere to. You have to trust the government a lot if we're collectively going to manage something like that. And as soon as a government official says one thing and says that we must all do one thing, and then he does precisely the opposite, trust in the government inevitably. Is, is this eroded. playing out uh, on party lines in the UK? Cause in the United States, 
it's generally the blue states, you know, the Democrats are trusting the government <laughs> and the red states, they don't. I mean, it's very, it's, it's just breaking out on incredibly partisan lines here. Although the study, the, I had a guy on my other podcast who said that what he noticed in his research was that it, people experienced the, the pandemic in a partisan tribal way until someone they know, if you were a Republican, in, until you or someone you knew got the virus. And then their opinion changed. Like they, they, the partisan lens dropped away, and they took it a lot more seriously. I mean, is it playing out in tribal ways in the UK? Um, I'm not. I'm not too sure, actually. I mean, it it was certainly the case at the beginning, and then for some time after the lockdown, that there was a general cross party acceptance that these measures were necessary, and there was, by and large, a very high compliance rate. Um, I think, and actually, I, I think I, I saw a survey some time ago now that said that the British population were more anxious than almost any other national community about the reversal of um, of lockdown measures. Um, but I, I think more recently, uh, well, public opinion is now turning against the government. So Boris Johnson's government was at first. Um, broadly i think supported by the british public i think now there's the kind of the almost constant reminder that certain missteps have been taken and uh judgment has been slow or off by the prime minister and a number of his ministers and that is now um that's now feeding into to polling evidence that says that people are less and less satisfied with the government's response to the pandemic i think um i just want to offer one last sort of just the thing on the table. I, 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 it, it connects. I, I, I don't think it answers any of the questions we've been raising. But, you know, as we've been talking about, you know, the expert and the layperson, um, you know, representation and deliberation, uh, the need and the value of it. And, and in this COVID moment, these questions of sort of trust and legitimacy of the people who are telling us things, um, experts, political leaders, I guess at a, at a kind of like human tribal level, I think the value of, of trying to figure out how do we, how could we create, you know, these like genuinely deliberative spaces in our communities where, where, you know, it's not one way, but it's kind of, we're all getting something out of this, uh, is, is to kind of recognize that, you know, how, how, many, how many groups of others there really are. You know, so, so experts, you know, you know, Harry, you're an academic, I'm an academic, but you know, like those academic, like people with advanced degrees who actually work inside universities, and now suddenly they come into my life and tell me that, you know, this is how we need to be. Like, I don't know you. You know, our kids don't go to the same school. We never hang out, right? Like, there's there's no... We may live in the same kind of artificial political community, but I don't know you. So who are you to tell me these things? And it's the same kind of with political leaders. Like, our kids don't hang out, right? I You've never invited me to your birthday party, right? We just... We live in, we, we may be part of the same, you know, we may have the same passport, yeah. but we live in different worlds. And, and, 
and this to me is a moment that you know where the where the where the limits of how far we can go for one another and 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 just go with what one another says sort of come really to the fore if we've never tried to invest in 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 crossing those boundaries yeah i think i think that's right i mean i suppose the only all i'd add is a kind of as a i mean a, a potential counter argument to these sorts of things which I think is fair to an extent is that, you know, there are some instances where political or policy decisions need to be, they're necessarily reactive. They need to be immediate. Mm. And in those situations, in kind of emergency situations, a slightly slower, a slightly more considered, a slightly kind of a, a more wide ranging, deliberative, discursive environment isn't necessarily the most plausible because something needs to happen incredibly quickly. But up to that, I would say that those instances are much fewer than you might think. Um, you know, there was in fact quite a long delay between the government knowing that COVID was an issue and then the government locking down. So it mm. is conceivable, in fact, that certain mm. deliberative exercises could have been held in that intervening period. It's certainly true to say that the government has known and has been planning for varying degrees of unlocking and that deliberative events could have been conducted in any of the, the the periods since the lockdown. They don't take that long to convene. They can be held over several days. Um, so there's something hmm. in answer to the challenge, well, these things aren't really practicable or useful in a very time-sensitive political environment. I think that's true to an extent, but there are in many, many instances, these things can be built in. Harry, thanks for sharing your wisdom with us. And I hope that your tribe uh, of, you know, democratic, deliberative uh, advocates increases. A wild bunch. <laughs> you never invite me to those parties. Yeah, I wouldn't want too many of them. And if they help, if they hosted a party, you would be missing nothing. Thanks so much. <laughs> uh, well, and yeah, thanks for asking the the hard questions. It's been thanks great. for having me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening to the Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us. Bye.